We are jumping back into our commonly misunderstood, misapplied, misinterpreted, whatever other miss Pastor Jeff is like to throw in the midst. And uh, we've got that for a couple more weeks. And as we were looking at today's, we were going to visit a passage in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 7. And it actually happened to be a passage that I had the opportunity to speak on last year in uh, the third Monday service. So it's going to be a, a replay of that sermon. But I'll tell you what, that this text has been so powerful in my life over the last few months. So I really hope it speaks to you like it has to me. So let me pray, and then we're going to dive in together. Heavenly Father, we are asking for exactly what we were just singing, that you speak to us, that as we open up your word, that you just apply it directly to our hearts, that we have a better understanding of, of who you are, of who Jesus is, of who you've designed and created us to be. And we are looking forward to diving into uh, one of the greatest sermons that's ever delivered by none other than Jesus himself. So give us spiritual insight and uh, just help us to, to clearly apply this to our lives this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in, in 1903, the New York Times published an article in response to the recent failure of the Langley Aerodrome. Now, do any of you know what the Langley Aerodrome is? Probably only those who were maybe at the third Monday service, right? So the Langley Aerodrome, let me give you a little bit of backstory on that. In the late 1800s, American interest in uh, developing some sort of flying machine was at the highest it's ever been. And the director of the Smithsonian Institute, his name was Samuel Langley, he had begun developing some primitive designs for a mechanical flying machine. He had tried to come up with some designs for a machine that had an engine, tandem wings, and could actually take off and, and enter into the atmosphere. And his designs, it caught the attention of the U.S. Army, and they had decided to invest $50,000 to help fund his ongoing research and prototype development. And though there was lots of enthusiasm, though there was a lot of funding, success was in short supply. On October 7, 1903, Langley had charged his chief officer, his chief engineer, Charles Manley, to get into the prototype and to attempt to pilot this thing as best he could for its first run. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not be very happy if my boss said, here's this flying machine that's never worked, jump in and pilot it for me. But Charles Manley was a good employee. He tried to do the test run, but it was a total disaster. The aerodrome never made it off the ground, and instead it immediately crashed into the Potomac River. And two days later, the New York Times published a pretty harsh criticism of the aerodrome entitled, Flying Machines Which Do Not Fly. And the article is filled with cynicism and criticism and contempt for the dream of creating any sort of flying machine. The writer mockingly compared Langley to the famed Greek character Icarus who flew too close to the sun. And then the author describes all of the mathematical and physical and technological barriers that would have to be overcome to successfully develop such a machine. And he uses a scientific illustration to try to hammer home his point. 
He says, if the supposed process of evolution took tens of thousands of years to move birds from primitive wings to actual wings that can sustain flight, what chance do we have to design a machine that can fly? And the author then answers his own rhetorical question by writing, it might be assumed that the flying machine, which will really fly, might be evolved by the combined and continuous efforts of mathematicians and mechanical engineers in approximately 1 million to 10 million years. Provided, of course, we can eliminate such little drawbacks and embarrassments as the existing relation between weight and strength of inorganic material. And then the article concludes by advising inventors to stop wasting their time and energy on things that will never happen and instead focus on more profitable endeavors. Well, obviously this was not the first or last time the New York Times got it wrong. And just two months later, on December 17, 1903, the Wright brothers successfully flew their airplane prototype in North Carolina. Now, I'm not sure if the New York Times ever posted a uh, retraction for that article. However, it did prove to be a little bit of an embarrassment in their journalistic uh, history. But before we come down too hard on the author of this article, I want us to consider what it would be like to live in 1903. In 1903, the idea of having a flying machine probably felt way more like science fiction than actual science. I mean, human beings have dreamt of flying for centuries. We have sketches from the 1400s of Leonardo da Vinci trying to come up with flying machines. And here you are hundreds of years later, and you're no closer to developing it. So for many people, when they were thinking about the idea of a flying machine, given what they knew at the time, overcoming those obstacles probably felt impossible. However, the Wright brothers had uncovered some new information that changed everything. They pioneered the modern discipline of aerospace engineering. And from this, they had charted out new lift and drag equations from the research that they collected in wind tunnels. And from their research, they were able to figure out the exact amount of lift and thrust needed for an airplane to overcome the drag and gravitational forces. And from there, they then developed the right wing design, the right propeller design, and also the right engine size to produce that type of of lift and thrust. And the rest is history. What had long thought to be impossible was suddenly made possible. The Wright brothers uncovered the key information needed to unlock the mystery of man flight. Now, the reason I open with this story is because I think it probably captures how Jesus' audience would have felt uh, the first time that they reached the closing section of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus has delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And he has painted this compelling picture of what it looks like to be a citizen of his kingdom. Those who are part of his kingdom, those who want to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven, they would be poor in spirit. They would be mourners of sin. They would be meek. They would hunger and thirst for righteousness. They would be merciful They would be pure in heart. They would be peacemakers. They would be steadfast under persecution. His kingdom citizens would also be salt and light. 
They would be quick to reconcile. They would pursue sexual purity. They'd be faithful in marriage. They'd be filled with integrity and they would show sacrificial love towards their enemies. But he didn't even stop there. He said his kingdom citizens would also be generous without desiring recognition. They would be prayerful without being pious. They'd be spiritually focused instead of being materialistically focused. And they would be peaceful in the face of anxiety-inducing circumstances. And upon hearing this description, I think that the audience would have been simultaneously inspired, but at the same time discouraged. They'd be inspired by the amazingness of such a person, to be a person who embodies that type of lifestyle, those types of values, that type of character would be unimaginably desirable. But at the same time, I think they would be simultaneously discouraged. Everyone would be looking around and asking the same question. How could anybody ever live like this? How could this be possible? How could anyone live out the Sermon on the Mount? They're looking at what Jesus is calling. They're looking at themselves in the mirror and saying, Jesus, I can't, I can't do it. Just like the potential for flying machines would have sounded both incredible but impossible in 1900, the potential for living out the Sermon on the Mount would have sounded incredible but impossible for Jesus' original audience. And that really brings us to the main idea of today's passage. This is why today's passage is one of the ones in the series of misunderstood and misapplied scriptures. At this important juncture of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is encouraging and assuring his potentially discouraged followers that everything that he has taught them thus far in the Sermon on the Mount is possible. Though living as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in this broken world is assuredly hard. And though it might feel impossible at times, with Jesus, all things are possible. And it's really the big idea of this morning's passage. Today, we're going to see how Jesus makes the impossible possible. Jesus makes the impossible possible. So what's the impossible? The impossible is living out the Sermon on the Mount through our own strength. Embracing, embodying the kingdom attitudes and values and habits and fruit that Jesus has outlined in Matthew 5 to 7. And Jesus makes that possible. He tells us that we can indeed live like citizens of his kingdom right here and right now. We can live like Jesus, love like Jesus, look like Jesus, because he will give us the ability to do that. So that overview in mind, let's go ahead and look at our specific passage, which is Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. Here's what Jesus says. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father who's in heaven good give, good, give good gifts to those who ask him? I believe this passage gives us a great example of the danger of taking a text out of its context and making it say whatever we want it to say. Many times when this passage is preached on, it's lifted out of its context of the Sermon on the Mount and used as maybe a one-off sermon on the topic of prayer. And some people try to use this passage as kind of a proof text for a name it, claim it, prosperity gospel. And the idea is, if you want something from God, 
If you want God to do something in your life, you want this thing, you just got to ask, you just got to seek, you just got to knock. And if you are persistent enough, and if you have enough faith, eventually God will give you what you want. The magic formula is you got to have enough faith and be persistent and you can get anything you want from God. And it becomes this, you name it and you claim it and, and this becomes a magic formula for coercing God into giving you the things that you want. However, we're going to see that is obviously not what Jesus is trying to teach through this passage. But then at the same time, others have immediately jumped to the other extreme. And there's many preachers that are so nervous about the prosperity gospel and the name it, claim it theology that they immediately jump to what this passage is not promising. Instead of saying what the passage is teaching, they say, well, here's reasons that God might not always answer your prayer when you're asking and seeking and knocking. Perhaps it's not God's will. Perhaps you're not praying for the right kinds of things. Perhaps you have hidden sin in your life. Perhaps God hasn't said no, but he said wait because waiting produces patience, which produces endurance, which produces character in your life. Are all those things true? Yeah. Is that what Jesus is trying to do in this passage though? No. Jesus is not trying to give an apologetic for why God sometimes doesn't answer prayer. Those are both common ways of interpreting this passage, and they both fall short of Jesus' intended meaning. One makes Jesus promise something he's not promising. The other makes Jesus insert all sort of unspoken and undisclosed terms and conditions on a beautiful promise that he's just given to his disciples. Neither of those interpretations will do. So if that's the case... What is Jesus actually saying? What is Jesus actually promising? What's the reality he's trying to teach us? And to answer that question, all we need to do is read the passage in its original context of everything that's already been said in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's take another look at these verses. And as we do, I'm going to pause and do some exegetical unpacking as we work through them. Look back at verse 7. Jesus starts off. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be open to you. Pause there for a moment. In verse 7, Jesus is pivoting back to a topic that he's already addressed in Matthew 6. And that's the topic of prayer. Asking and seeking and knocking, they are different ways of describing coming before God, our Heavenly Father, in humble dependence and reliance on his provision in our life. And by the way that Jesus has arranged these words, and even the words that he's picked, it obviously is denoting the idea of persistency. We are to keep asking. We're to keep seeking. We are to keep knocking. We need to be persistent in our prayer. And we even see that in the tense of the Greek verbs that he uses. The Greek tense here is denoting the idea of an ongoing, repeated, habitual action. So that's what's going on here. We need to keep persistently praying. But that brings us to an important clarifying question. When Jesus tells us to be persistently praying, are we to be persistently praying for anything that we want, or are we to be persistently praying for something specific? Are we to be persistently praying for anything we want? Is Jesus saying, hey, Andrew, you have permission to ask and seek and knock that God, if I just keep asking and keep seeking and keep knocking and I'm persistently praying that, that you just make those mega millions numbers be exactly what I need so I win the lottery this week, just give me that winning ticket, Lord. Is it God, just give me, boop, magic 
Corvette appears in my driveway one day. I'm just going to keep praying until that happens. Or Lord, just keep praying for that big promotion. And I can, whatever it is, I ask and seek and knock. Can I pray for anything? Or is Jesus telling us to ask and seek and knock for something specific? I think the, clear, the latter is clearly in view. Because remember the context of this verse. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 6, Jesus has just told us that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Just a few verses earlier, Jesus has told us you can't serve God and materialism. You can't serve both God and money, and you're not to be anxious or fearful about all these material things because your heavenly father knows that you need them. So don't be stressed out. Don't be fearful of them. So if we're looking at the context, Jesus has already told us that instead of seeking material things or power or popularity or pleasure, we're to seek first the kingdom of God and to seek kingdom-oriented things. So with that context in mind, it should be obvious the types of things that Jesus is encouraging us to ask and seek and knock for. In fact, he uses the same word to make it abundantly clear. In Matthew 6.33, Jesus said, seek First, the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Just eight verses later, Jesus says that we are to ask and seek and knock. It's the same exact word in Greek. He's already told us what to seek. So putting this together, we are to persistently ask the Lord for the ability to live like Jesus, to prioritize his kingdom over the kingdom of this world, to serve him instead of the false god of materialism, And to prioritize asking for the ability to live out the Sermon on the Mount. To live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven here in a broken world. We are to persistently pray for God to transform us from the inside out. So that we become less like our old broken selves and more and more like Jesus. So once we understand this, the rest of our passage falls into place. The rest of our passage becomes far easier to understand and apply. Just look at verse 8. Jesus says, for everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. The one who knocks it will be opened. When we persistently ask God for the right kinds of things, for the things that Jesus has just identified, Jesus says, God will answer your prayer. We will receive. We will find. We will have the door open for us. And that's incredible. Jesus is saying, here's a prayer that God will always answer in the affirmative. Lord, please give me the strength to pursue your kingdom first, to live like Jesus. Father, please help me to embody your kingdom values and attitudes and habits and fruit. God will always answer that prayer. God longs for us to look more like Jesus. He longs to help us in our spiritual walk. Jesus longs to make the impossible possible in our lives. He longs to transform brokenness into wholeness. And in verses 9 through 11, Jesus gives an illustration to make this more concrete in our, eye, in our minds. Listen to what he says. He says, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, is going to give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Notice the picture that Jesus is drawing here. 
He says, imagine a son going up to his father and asking for bread and for fish, for asking for food, something that will nourish him and strengthen him. And Jesus says, what kind of parent would to that child then give them a rock that looks like bread to try to trick them so that they're going to break their teeth when they bite into it? Or instead of a fish, give them a serpent, and that's probably referring to an eel. There's an eel-like serpent fish that was popular in those waters that's then in turn, instead of going to be edible, bite them and hurt them and harm them. Jesus says only a sadistic and twisted parent would ever give their child something that's going to harm them, to try to trick them when the child's just asking for, for something helpful. And then he's trying to make an a fateriori argument, an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he says, if we as imperfect parents know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more would a perfect, loving, heavenly father give the good to his kids when they're asking him. And what Jesus is trying to say is that when you're asking and seeking and knocking for the right things, when, when you're asking for the ability to look like Jesus and to resist sin, that's not a prayer that God is ever going to ignore. God is not going to purposefully set you up to fail. He's not going to, going to neglect you. He's not going to deceive you. What kind of perfect, gracious, heavenly father would do that? Instead, our father wants to give us the good. He wants to give the good to his children who persistently ask him for it. Now stop there for a moment because I do want to take a quick closer look at verse 11. I think this is one of the few instances where the ESV, the translation that we most often use, did not do a great job of translating the original Greek into the English. And because of that, it's added to the confusion of how to rightly interpret this verse. Notice how the ESV translates verse 11. It translates it this way. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The ESV actually inserts a word that's not there in the original Greek. And if you take that word out, here's how it would actually read. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give the good to those who ask him? Consider why that's important. The word that I translated here as the good is the Greek word agathos. And throughout the gospel of Matthew, whenever Matthew uses the word agathos, he refers to moral goodness, ethical righteousness. He's talking about living the way that God wants us to live. So verse 11 is not saying that God gives good things to those who ask him for it. When we hear the word things as Americans, what do we immediately think of? Material possessions, because we're super materialistic. That's America. Oh, God gives good things. He gives me the car. He gives me the house. He gives me the clothes. He gives me the job. He gives me things, 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 things. We immediately jump to materialism. But what has Jesus just said? Don't be materialistic. Don't be self-absorbed, right? So it's not saying he gives good things as in material possessions. No, no, no. That contradicts the entire flow of the passage. God is saying, I will give you moral goodness. I will give you the strength to be the right type of person. I will give you my righteousness when you're seeking after it. That's what I want for you. So now that we actually understand the amazing promise of this passage, let's go back to our big idea. 
The big idea is Jesus makes the impossible. That was very quiet, so let's try that again. Jesus makes the impossible possible. possible. Very good, right? Yes. Nah, I like that extra one at the end. That was good. The impossible. We can't live out the Sermon on the Mount on our own. We, we're not Jesus, right? And when Jesus articulates, this is what it means to be my follower, and we look at that, we think, I, I can't do this through my own strength. I can't sanctify myself. I can't live like Jesus through my own ability or my own goodness. By our own strength, the Sermon on the Mount is an impossible ideal. But grace, but Jesus, Jesus wants to make the impossible possible in our lives. God promises to help us. He tells us that he will give us what we need to be transformed into the image of Jesus. He will help us seek his kingdom and his righteousness. But we have to be asking, seeking, and knocking. We have to be persistently asking. We have to be reliant on him. So let's move to our concluding, concluding section of the sermon by just thinking of three application points. How does the power of this promise impact our lives? The first thing that I think we should take away is this. We need to admit our inability to change ourselves. We need to admit our inability to change ourselves. I know far too many people that think that in order to become a Christian, they need to change themselves and work for it. They think if I'm good enough, if I'm strong enough, if I do enough good stuff, then God will accept me. Wrong. We can never be good enough. We can't perform. It's not based on our efforts. I also know a lot of Christians that on the other side of they have turned away from their sin and they've trusted in Jesus as their savior and the king of their lives and they are in a new relationship with Christ. But then they think, okay, God saved me. Now it's up to me. Now God says, okay, time to, time to cut you loose. It's, the rest is up to you. It's a, a grit, determination. It's all what you choose to do and the responsibility is yours, but that is wrong as well. We need both God's forgiving grace and God's transforming grace in our lives. The spiritual life from start to finish, all, all the strength comes from God. We need God's forgiving grace to take us from a place of being spiritually separated from God into new life, but we need God's transforming grace to each and every day help us to look like Jesus because we can't win those battles on our own. And as long as we're trying to do it by ourselves. Without his help, we will, we will fail. This doesn't mean that we don't work alongside God's grace in our spiritual lives. We do. It just means that we need to understand that transformation begins with reliance on God, not self-reliance. So let, me, let me give you an illustration to talk about sanctification that, that hopefully makes this a little more concrete. When I was in high school, my grandpa was the caretaker of a local doctor's hobby farm. It was kind of a big hobby farm. It was about 30 acres, I think. And uh, in the summer, I would help my grandpa take care of this farm. Now imagine that you're in charge of keeping the grounds of a 30-acre farm. And it's beautifully manicured, and you are, you are responsible to do all the upkeep and make it look good. But imagine if you're not given a gas mower, you're not given an edger, you're not given a weed whacker. All you're given is a small reel mower. 
Not R-E-A-L, but R-E-E-L. One of the little mowers that you push and it goes click, 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 right? So some of you get that. Maybe some of us are younger. You can Google it later, right? A real mower. Now, if you're, if you're mowing with a real mower, it takes about four hours to mow one acre of grass, okay? So it's not the most efficient. So I know, I know it's not even noon yet. I'm making you do math. But 30 times four is 120, right? So 120. So it would take you 120 hours just to mow it. Would you ever be able to upkeep that farm with just a little real mower? No. For those of you that didn't say no, I'm going to let you try and we're going to see next week and you can come. No, no, there's no way, right? Because it's an impossible task. You'll never get through. You'll never get done. You'll never be able to do it because no matter how hard you try, no matter how much work you put in, you don't have the ability. It's impossible. But imagine if the owner of the farm gave you a zero-turn mower that has a 104-inch mowing deck. They give you the nicest weed whacker and edger possible. They give you all the fuel, all the supplies you need. Would you be able to accomplish the job now? Yeah. Now, here's my question. Is it still going to be hard work? Of course. Is it, you're still going to have to get up and get sweaty and put a lot of effort in. Absolutely. But now you can actually accomplish the task because you've been given the tools, right? That's what Jesus is saying. If we try to live the Sermon on the Mount on our own strength, it's like trying to mow 30 acres with a real mower. We can't do it. But the minute we recognize that we don't have the ability and we ask God for the help, we still got to put in the work. We still got to resist the desires of the flesh. We still have to do hard things. The Christian life, it's not easy, but it is possible because Jesus says, I will give you all the tools that you need. I will give you what you need. So once we, once we admit our inability to change ourselves and we recognize I can't do it, that's going to drive us to our knees in prayer and we are going to ask for help. And that's the whole point of this passage. We're going to ask for help. We're going to persistently pray for God to help us live out the Sermon on the Mount and to live and look like Jesus. And this passage shows us four things that should characterize the way that we ask. We should ask persistently, right? We need to keep asking. We need to keep seeking. And we need to keep knocking. It's not, it's not a one and done thing. It's not this thing where we pray once and ask for help and then we never have to pray for it again. No, no, no. Jesus will recharge our spiritual battery, but we deplete it really fast, which means we need to constantly what? We need to recharge, and we recharge by asking for a fresh, a fresh jolt from Jesus. There you go. Uh, we need to ask persistently. And one of the reasons we need to ask persistently is because persistent prayer reveals a heart of desperation and humility. We recognize that God isn't just one amongst many resources. He's our only resource for help. I think of what the psalmist says in Psalm 121. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So we're to ask persistently. But secondly, we're to ask kingdomly. And yes, I made up that word. Get over it. Ask kingdomly, right? (laughs) Ask kingdomly. And what I mean by that is we are to ask with the right kingdom in mind. We are to ask for things that further the kingdom of heaven. We are to ask for things that matter in light of eternity and who God created us to be, which means we're not going to be asking God for for silly things that, are, that don't really matter in light of eternity. We're not going to be asking for things that are grounded in materialism or the kingdom of this world. 
We're asking for things that relate to the kingdom of God. So we ask kingdomly. But third, we need to ask expectantly. We need to have faith that prayer is powerful. Spiritual change oftentimes begins when we think that change is actually possible. I know a lot of people out there that think, I'm never going to be set free from this sin. I'm never going to grow. I'm never going to be able to do these things. And as long as we believe change is impossible, you're not going to change. But the minute that we believe that God means what he says and God will help us and change is possible, that's the first step to change. We ask for God's help and we ask expectantly knowing God's going to give it to us. I think of what James writes in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you lack spiritual wisdom, here's what you should do. Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave being tossed around in the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. What James is saying there is, if you need spiritual wisdom, if, if you need help from the Lord, ask him, but don't ask thinking there's no way God's actually going to help. That person should not presume that they're going to receive anything from the Lord because God wants us to ask expectantly. And then fourth, ask confidently. Ask confidently. We can be confident that God will hear us, that God will answer us, that God will empower us. Why? Because Jesus has told us we are his beloved children. He is our heavenly father. That's the title Jesus uses here. And he has revealed that he is a good father. He loves you. He's compassionate towards you. He is always taking a step towards you. He never wants to give you a rock or a snake when you're asking for spiritual sustenance. And the more we understand what God is like, the more we will come to him over and over again to ask with confidence and being confident that he'll never turn us away. So we admit our inadequacy, we ask for help, and then third, we act in faith. We act in faith. When we're faithful to make the ask, we're confident that God promises that he will work in us, so we're going to live it out. Interestingly, the parallel passage in Luke's gospel to our passage, because Luke also has a version of the Sermon on the Mount. The, uh, Luke actually records the Sermon on the Mount a little bit differently than the Apostle Matthew does. Listen to Jesus' closing exhortation in Luke's gospel in Luke eleven thirteen. Here's what he writes. He says, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. He'll give the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the good that God promises to abundantly give. I think that the Holy Spirit is the means by which God answers our prayer to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The reason that Jesus makes the impossible possible, the reason that we can live differently, the reason that we can be sanctified is because God literally takes up residence in our lives to give us the strength, the power, and the presence that we need to be transformed. He knows we could never do it alone, which is why he never calls us to. He says, I, I love you enough that I will send the Holy Spirit to come and fill you to give you everything that you need to live differently. 
He desires for us to be victorious enough to come and live within us. So I just want to illustrate this idea of the reason that we can have growth and victory is because God is giving us the strength. He's working in us through the Holy Spirit. I just want to give you a couple examples of why we can act in faith according to Scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. How can, why, why can we be confident that we can overcome temptation? Well, it's because no temptation has overtaken you, but such that is common to man. And God's faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with that temptation, he will provide a way of escape so that you can endure it. We can choose the way of escape and resist the temptation because God says, I will always meet you and show you a way of escape and give you the strength you need to resist. Why can we share the gospel confidently? Why can we obey Jesus' command to go and make disciples? Well, according to Acts 1.8, Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We choose to share the gospel and act in faith because we trust that Jesus has told us the Holy Spirit is going to give us courage and guide our words. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God gave us a spirit, not of fear but, or timidity, but of power and love and self-control. We can have courage and self-control in fearful inducing circumstances because God didn't give us a spirit of fear. He gave us a spirit of freedom. He gave us a spirit of courage and power and self-control. I think of second or 1 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. The Apostle Paul says, We have received not the spirit of this world, but the Holy Spirit, who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. We can choose to spend time in God's word, not being intimidated, knowing that the Holy Spirit will help us understand it and bring God's word to life, uh, to life in our hearts. I also think of 2 Corinthians 3.18. The Apostle Paul says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. We can choose to pursue spiritual growth and keep pressing forward in our spiritual lives. Even though at times it's two steps forward, a couple steps back, we, we know that we can keep trying to pursue Jesus because the Holy Spirit's going to help us look more like Jesus even if that process takes a lifetime and even if we fall down a thousand times, God's going to keep picking us up. And then Galatians 5, we're reminded of the fruit of the Spirit. We can deny the desires of the flesh and choose to press into the desires of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is working in us to produce new and better fruit. So as we look back at today's passage, we are reminded that Matthew 7, 7 through 11 is a beautiful promise. And the promise is that Jesus desires to make the impossible possible in our lives. He wants to take this ideal kingdom citizen that we look at and think, I could never be that. And on our own, we can't. And Jesus says, I will make that possible in your life. All you have to do is turn away from the broken things of this world and sin and put your trust in me and, and, and ask and seek and knock and I will help you every step of the way. I will save you. I will be there for you. Jesus makes the impossible possible. But all we have to do is admit our inadequacy ask persistently for help, and then act in faith. Let's do those three things this week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father,
Uh, we, are rem- we are just reminded this morning that we can do nothing apart from you. We are reminded that apart from Jesus, there is no hope for salvation. There's no hope for transformation. There is no hope for freedom. None of us are good enough. None of us are strong enough. We all stand in equal need of a Savior at the foot of the cross. And we are so incredibly grateful that Jesus died to give us freedom. Jesus died to give us salvation and deliverance. Jesus died to right all of the wrongs and the brokenness of this world. All he calls us to do is to turn away from brokenness, turn away from sin, turn away from our rebellion against you, and to trust in him as our Savior and King. And Father, we know that that, that is hard, but is, in, is incredibly worth it. There's nothing better than knowing Jesus. Thank you for being our Heavenly Father who loves us relentlessly and who loves to make the impossible possible in our lives. Help us to walk away today feeling encouraged and renewed in our desire to live, love, and look like Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.